Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to the fourth edition of GCSE Revision Pod. We've got a cool new jingle, sir. Very professional. Mm, it sounds fantastic, doesn't it? I worry that it makes us sound quite cool and then the moment we start talking... False expectations. Yeah. And speaking of false expectations, we're, uh, we're going to move away from Romeo and Juliet today. We thought... You know, we've talked a lot about a play where love kind of triumphed and, you know, the world seemed at moments beautiful. There was light in there. There was hope. We're going to move to the murky world of Victorian Britain now and talk about something far more interesting, I think. Yeah, we're going to look at um, uh, Stevenson's 1886 novella, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So this is obviously staying with Literature Paper 1. Students who have done this text will be answering one question on Romeo and Juliet, one question on Jekyll and Hyde. So in terms of the structure of the essays, it's going to be really similar, isn't it? Yeah, and likewise, like Romeo and Juliet, we're given an extract. So Generally, it makes sense to begin your essay looking at the extract before you look at the rest of the story. Yeah, and I think, again, the same idea of the big ideas coming from the extract and then perhaps two other areas of the novella to focus on will work really well here. So, as before, I will put the... um, Mr. Forster makes me do all the actual hard work with the podcast. I will put the link to this question into the bio so you can download it and work along with us. If you're, for any reason, having trouble with that... Uh, what extract is it, sir, that they can look at in the book? So we're looking at an extract from chapter one, um, and it is where Enfield tells Utterson all about his encounter with Hyde. Um, this is the moment when um, we hear that Hyde has run down a little girl in the street and trampled her mm. um, like some damned juggernaut. Um, the question is, starting with this extract, how far do you agree that Stevenson presents Hyde as a dangerous outsider? Now, this is good for you to talk about because I've often heard you described as a dangerous outsider. So presumably you related quite a lot to this extract. Danger is my middle name. <laughs> it's actually Douglas. Which is a, one of the most dangerous names, I imagine. Famously. Now, coming into this extract then, so we've got this bit where... Enfield was walking home. Enfield, a bit of a man about town, not a huge character in the in the novella, but a bit of a man about town, a bit of a, a bit of a party head perhaps. And he's coming home at some late hour of the morning and witnesses an incredible sight of this kind of pale dwarfish man trampling over a young girl, and then seemingly not bothered about it at all, mm. right? Um, so. In that case, then, we're looking at this extract and we're thinking, how is he a dangerous outsider? Obviously he is, but there's more to it than that, isn't there? Yeah, so I think before we get into the nitty-gritty in the extract, I think we need to give an overview of the question, just right. like we would in any... The kind of things that will go into your introduction. Fantastic. So I think the most important thing, the obvious thing, is, of course, of course, Hyde is a terrifying and disturbing and dangerous outsider. Mm. He um, is a threat to the respectable classes of late 19th century society. He's associated with Soho, a place that, in the late 19th century, is a place of prostitution and 
therefore, this, the crime that he represents is, is a clear threat. Mm. But, of course, by the end of the story, something that we're going to argue later on in this podcast, it becomes clear that he is, of course, the physical manifestation of the negative aspects of Jekyll. What it comes down to, I think, is they wish he was an outsider, really. Yeah. That's the thing, isn't it? Everyone wants him to be an outsider. They want him to be separate. But, of course, what we learn at the end is he lives within all of us. Yeah. And that's, that's what's terrifying. So the ultimate twist to this question will be that the most terrifying thing is he's not a dangerous outsider at all. Okay, but... I think we've jumped straight to quite an advanced point there. So obviously the, the introduction would set that out as the idea of, yes, he, he, you know, he's an out, a dangerous outsider in a lot of ways. There's this element of, to him that, of course, he's actually not an outsider. But I suppose the first thing they've got to do is get into the yeah. dangerous start, outsider stuff. Start really, really simply with the extract. With, yeah. with your AO2, your language. Yeah. Give yourself a nice solid foundation for the essay. Yeah. So I think the, the obvious point to start with, before we get into the description of Hyde himself, um, uh, Stevenson uses the pathetic fallacy at the start. It's a dark winter morning. It's three o'clock. It's black. Um, and this prepares us for the appearance of this disturbing a bit figure. Of pathetic fallacy. Exactly. The mm. weather seems to be reflecting the mood. Mm. Um, and the description of Hyde, he's described as stumping along eastward at a good walk. And then before he encounters the child and... Um, uh, and Enfield says that the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. Now, the first thing jumping out there is, of course, the verb trampled is incredibly violent in its uh, in its connotations. But what about the fact that he trampled calmly? Yeah. I think what's so disturbing is this juxtaposition between how he is calm as he trampled her, the violence of that verb trampled, the animalistic connotations of it, um, like he's some beast out of control. And yet this calmness that implies something disturbing something sinister they're always the most scary characters those who can enact violence without seemingly being angry like when i observed your year 11 class well exactly you know they have to they have to learn uh, one way or another so the simile also i pick out that would be particularly a bit of an ao3 context point here mm. is that um enfield compares him to some damned juggernaut right now a lot of people won't know what a juggernaut is or they'll think of x-men Definitely. Um, as their first reference. What actually is it? So the point we can make here, and this is where your AO2 links to your AO3, in British-controlled India, the followers of Vishnu, um, Jagannath, annually tracked, um, dragged in procession a statue of the deity on an enormous car, under we- the wheels of which the devotees were said to have flung themselves. Mm. Hence, when Hyde tramples the child as if he were some dram- damn juggernaut, he's identified for a Victorian readership with what they would have seen as the barbaric and uncivilised rituals of an unchristian country. So this was the arrogance of the Victorians really coming across here. The idea that not only was there a similarity to the way he went over her in the way that the statue of the juggernaut would have gone over to people, but they that outsider element of the question, the idea that in the uncivilised world beyond the Victorians, that incredible arrogance would have come across. So this sets him up as as an outsider, as a dangerous outsider. Yeah. Um, uh, But what I think this simile does also perhaps set up a, a bit of a stretch and challenge point or come back to later but actually there's also something foreign exotic about this simile associate this association with india that actually perhaps sets us up for the attraction that jekyll has for hyde that actually mm. that that he is this outsider but there's perhaps something about him that is quite interesting yeah if you keep squashing down all your desires they will only seem perhaps but, more exciting but maybe that's getting a bit ahead of ourselves so let's get back to a nice simple point which is he's described as ugly and um, Enfield says that he's taken a loathing to the gentleman. Now, that reminds me very much of when you did my job interview. But what do you think it's relevant to in terms of here, this idea of taking a loathing to someone at the first time you meet them? Well, I think this is a, another context point. This is a second example where your AO3 analysis links into your AO2. Mm. Um, that actually the Victorians believed in the theory of physiognomy. 
Okay, that's a long and complex word. Yeah, I mean, essentially what that boils down to is they believed that you could tell a man's character by looking at his face. Mm. So they thought it was a science that if you were perhaps a little bit ugly like yourself, Mr. Galley, <laughs> actually you might be a criminal. I was going to say, I would suffer under physiognomy. Yeah. I feel, I'm glad that's an expired <laughs> so, uh, mode of science. So how we could say this in an essay is we could say that the ugliness of Hyde here and the loathing Enfield has for him, drawing upon the Victorian theme. Um, the theory of physiognomy seemed to set up his negative and dangerous characteristics. Yes, and that is, I think, where this essay would really win is when students keep coming back to this idea of it's about them wanting him to be a dangerous outsider. You know, everything about Hyde in the early part of the novel, uh, Enfield taking a loathing to him, him looking animalistic, him looking like a juggernaut, it's about them wanting him to be of some other world. Nobody wants to accept that this little monstrous thing could be like us. Definitely. I mean, I think before we get back to that point, I think mm. maybe we need to look for other evidence in the rest of the novella that shows this same thing, because that's probably where this essay's going, isn't it? I'd agree. You'd notice, students, that I jumped ahead in the running order there, and Mr Forster very kindly brought us back to task. Wonderful teaching there, sir. Thank you. Right, what would you say about the rest of the novel? So, there's quite a few little bits we could pick up on here. So, rather than just focusing on one of the bits, we could talk about how um, in Lanyon's narrative in chapter 9, he's quite like a beast. He's described as mm. being misbegotten and a creature. Then in chapter one, um, Enfield also says that he's pale and dwarfish. He's hardly human. He's even troglodytic. Mm. A thing that students can bring in about the rest of the novel as well, this is what I always teach my kids about Jekyll and Hyde, is that when people meet him, they always seem to go through the same stages. You'll, if you meet Hyde, you'll A find him really repulsive you'll be have some kind of physical reaction like you'll go cold or your blood will freeze or something like that and then see you'll then struggle to put him into words and there's a wonderful bit as well in the novella that students can look for when uh, Utterson is failing to describe Hyde and yeah. I think anything about him being a dangerous outsider those examples where anyone struggles to put him into words are fantastic yeah and I think and, 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 and there's alongside that there's also a metaphor that runs through all of it and let's remember metaphor analysis is a real easy way to pick up always always look for that and the metaphors we constantly see are of Hyde as an animal or as Hyde as being somehow primitive so let's look at this word troglodytic for a moment okay um, it's an incredibly difficult word, but of course a troglodyte is a cave dweller. So we're talking, this is, this is a word suggesting that he's like a caveman, he's primitive. Early man. Early man. Mm. And this actually, linking in again to AO3, plays upon Victorian fears. Right. Because in the 19th century we have Charles Darwin writing about evolution. He came along and terrified the beginning. Yeah. And this is terrifying because if you are a Victorian, suddenly you've got this... The scary idea that perhaps we are evolved from the, the same common ancestor as the ape. Mm. Perhaps they are our cousins. And if that is the case, what separates us from the animals? So the, all of this animalistic imagery seems to play on what you could say in an essay on post-Darwinian fears. Okay, that's how you describe it. Yeah, it's fears in the, in the wake of Charles Darwin, fears that, that Victorian readers would definitely have. And I think a good way of our students getting into that frame of mind is they are taught Darwinism in school, so they're all aware of the theory. If you're a Victorian, you've... Oh, you've been brought up with the idea that you were made in God's image. You were brought up with this idea that you as a human were perfect. And suddenly for the first time, somebody's come along and said, actually, you might just be a very high functioning ape. Yeah. And we see this again. Perhaps let's look at the, the Carrie murder now. Yeah. Um, it's a lovely link here because we see this simian imagery, which means that you're a bit like a monkey, like, like you, sir. Right. Because um, Hyde is described as having this ape-like fury. Yes. Um, much like you with your young well. again. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and again when Paul describes him later on as looking like a monkey as he jumped around the chemicals um, 
this is again playing on these same fears, isn't it? Yeah, and it's not this. They the students would do well to understand that it's when it's monstrous. It's not a monster out of a fantasy. It's not a monster that we wouldn't recognise. It's a caveman, or exactly, it's or, that or a monster monkey. that looks a little bit like us. Which is what makes it most scary, of course. And yeah, and there's that fantastic bit, of course, with the alliterative description of Enfield Seaton's seeing Satan's signature upon his face. Yeah, it's a wonderful metaphor, that, because it implies that somehow he's been written by the devil. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that really takes us on to another bit, which is when Lanyon gives his impression of Hyde. Do you think that would be a good bit? So we've looked at the rest of the novel. We've had our analysis of the extract where we've talked about him as a dangerous outsider as a juggernaut trampling the girl taking a disliking to him we've then gone to other parts of the novella where he's described as bestial where he's described as like a troglodyte and all these kind of things where people have struggled with the language but then we've got this nice bit of lanyon and lanyon of course is so shocked when he sees hyde yeah i mean lanyon is so shocked when he realizes that hyde is jekyll that he dies yeah um, I think, you know, he arrives... So Hyde in um, in Chapter 9, he arrives at Lanyon's house at midnight, the witching hour, a time right. long associated with evil. Um, and he's so threatened that he keeps his hand ready on his pistol. Yeah. Um, and then we see again this zoomorphic imagery, this animalistic imagery. Um, so Hyde um, is described as being below his haunches, um, mm. haunches being an animalistic term for his legs. Yes. We've got the idea of him being abnormal and misbegotten, a creature. Um, and even the suggestion of misbegotten implies both he's unnatural, he somehow goes against nature. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, he is, in some senses, he is to do with nature. He is our more natural side. Well, yeah, in terms of finishing this first section of our essay, mm. what's perhaps kind of terrifying about here is that he seems like a dangerous outsider. He seems like he's this frightening figure that bursts in, who scares Lanyon to death. But... This is where we might want to transition a little bit. He, he is Jekyll. And I think we can really, we could perhaps break this podcast into two sections because you could either just write that essay, can you? You could Definitely. write an essay and you say, you know what? Yes, he absolutely is a dangerous outsider. And I'm going to take you through the novella and show you all these different ways in which Stephen uses language to yeah. leave us in no doubt that he's A, dangerous yeah. and B, sits outside. Um, of what we normally expect. Did we talk about the Karoo murder, sir? Yes, we briefly touched upon it. Um, we mentioned the ape-like fury. Uh, absolutely. And of course, for me, the really shocking part for that bit, which we could also bring in, was the audible nature of the beating. Now, that doesn't sound like that much, but when you think about it, when you see someone getting beaten, you would expect that the sight of it would be what really stayed with you. And I think the fact that the... Is it the maid who remembers it? Yes. I think it's the fact that the maid remembers the audible breaking of his bones shows you just how brutal and dangerous that beating was. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it reminds me, I I actually, I once broke uh, another boy's bone when I was at school playing rugby. Oh my goodness. And it sounded like a wet branch snapping and it made me cry. It was so disturbing and horrible. I'm not surprised. I think I was more upset than he was. Another similarity between (laughs) yourself and Hyde for, uh, for us all to worry about. Now, so that, okay, so that would be one version of the essay that we've just described where Definitely. you just talk about him as a um, dangerous outsider however and this is where stretch and challenge comes in a better essay would consider the fact that actually he's not really an outsider yeah i think the most frightening aspect is of course that he's he is jekyll and i think this is perhaps the where we want to look at a little bit of evidence because of course this revelation only comes at the very end of the novella when we realize we're not looking at a crime novel we're not looking at um at, we're actually looking at something quite different. We're looking at something that is engaging with science. Yeah. Because, of course, um, the most frightening aspect is that, that, that he is not some supernatural creature. 
but he's created. And we see, so when we find out um, about this in the final chapter, there's a really interesting moment that I'd like to analyse where Jekyll talks about Hyde. But it's interesting to note how he talks about him. So he says in this, in this chapter, he says that Hyde was indifferent to Jekyll or but remembered him as the mountain bandit remembers the cavern in which he conceals himself from pursuit. So when Hyde thinks about Jekyll, he either doesn't care of him or he, uh, sorry, doesn't care about him or he remembers him like a cave he yeah. once hid in. So this, this is it's, it's a really simple simile suggesting that, you know, Jekyll is just a hiding place. Yeah. But I think what's most disturbing about this that maybe sometimes people miss is that Jekyll here talks by himself in the third person. Right. Um, he talks, and therefore there's this slight slipping of character of who actually does Jekyll really think he is because what's quite sinister is he seems to have lost his sense of identity just to be clear what do you mean by talking about himself in the third person so he says that Jekyll um uh he sorry I've, I've lost I've he says that Jekyll, he was indifferent to Jekyll. Yeah, he was indifferent to Jekyll. So talking about himself Jekyll, using his yeah. name. So if I sort of saying Mr. Forster is indifferent to Mr. Galley, right. you'd be like, why are you talking about yourself like that? Or that Mr. Galley should have read the podcast more before, uh, the notes more before they started. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and I think what this shows, therefore, is that actually, far from being two separate figures, they are, of course, the same. Because there's another simile that shows this. He, he says that, um, that he had but to drink the cup to doff at once the body of the noted professor and assume like a thick cloak that of Edward Hyde. Right. Crucially, this simile is not implying that they're separate people. He's, he's simply a, a piece of clothing to be worn. That's in, Yeah, and that goes into the issue of control, I think, which is another thing we could talk about at a later date. This idea that Jekyll used to believe that Hyde was something he completely controlled, but somewhere along the line, that dangerous outsider becomes something he could no longer exert any authority over and something that could start coming out whenever he wanted to. Definitely. And a great AO3 point here is to bring in perhaps a little bit of Freud. I did him at uni. Excellent. Did he tell you about your mother? Um, we didn't get into that, unfortunately. <laughs> but the point we need to look... So Freud obviously is writing after this novel. So it's... it's but what, what there was at the end of the Victorian era was a, a huge interest um, in the subconscious mind. Right. And so if we did a, what, what we might call a Freudian reading of the novel, this is where we look at the novel through the lens of Freud. And if we do this, we could see Hyde as the id. Which is the base part of the mind. If we are indeed evolved from primates, from monkeys, the id is the surviving bit of the yeah. mind from that time. So a slightly simplistic version of Freud's theory is that actually there's, the id is your almost base instinct, the desire to eat, to fight, to reproduce. Mm. Um, then you've got the superego, which is the part, which is the, the moralising part, the, thought, the things what you should be doing. Almost like like the, the parent in your head. Yeah. And then there's the ego that balances the two. And the ego's got this very difficult job of keeping both happy, which really is what this novella is all about, right? Precisely. And in a Freudian reading, which just to finish off this last point, mm. in a Freudian reading, we could argue that actually what the final chapter shows us is this loss of the ego, this loss of the balance between his, the, the moralising part of himself and this primitive bestial part. And this, of course, is when he loses control. Yeah. And that is the, something that students should always consider bringing in, especially towards the end of the essay. So if I'm, if I'm right in sort of summing this up, sir, we're basically saying that if you get a question like this where it says, is Hyde dangerous or is Hyde an outsider or is Hyde a monster or whatever this is, of course start by drawing on all the examples where Stevenson shows that he is a monster, he yep. is dangerous, he is a killer, etc., etc. But if you can, and this is where the real top-level marks will be, talk about the fact that the most terrifying thing about Mr Hyde is that it's not this 
alien thing coming in and attacking us it's something that lives within all of us yeah and this is this is the point of your conclusion isn't it yeah stevenson is concluding that actually what is most frightening about Hyde is that he's not a dangerous outsider he is and, and, and this is actually the, the final bit of context maybe oh yeah um, stevenson was influenced by some murders that went on in edinburgh um by men named burke and Hare. they were surgeons weren't they well burke and Hare were not burke and Hare were criminals but dr knox ah. was a man who wanted bodies to do some research into anatomy and when the police investigated all of this um, Burke and Hare were punished one went to prison one was executed but Dr Knox was never punished uh. so the idea being that actually this, this respectable man kind of escaped you know he escaped any kind of justice and I think what this novel's really showing us is that actually monsters exist not necessarily in the mm. supernatural under the bed or outside in the yeah. other world or in the criminal underclasses maybe people that we know maybe, respect, yeah. maybe even the most respectable person in society a doctor like Dr. Jekyll or even Dr. Knox, mm. could be that monster that we fear. It is the terror, which is what they feared so much. And of course, makes sense with all these new theories like Darwinism and like Freudian theories that were being brought in at the time. Well, sir, I think, I think we did all right there. What do you think? Yeah, I would say that we... I think that's probably the reason why we got the email just before this podcast saying we are now number 293 in the Cambodian podcast chart. A pretty impressive achievement. Yes, but we would, of course, like to get this out to more because the reason we're doing this is, of course, to aid with your studies. So please, if you could give us a subscribe and suggest us to um, any of your friends who are also in this situation. If um, we're, there's going to be an email in the bio of the podcast. If you have any questions that you would like us to cover or any suggestions, please drop us an email and we will endeavour to try and do a podcast around the topics that you suggest as well. Have a wonderful week and we will see you next time on GCSE Revision Pod. Goodbye.